Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Uh, welcome back, everybody, uh, to San Francisco, Dharma Collective. Uh, Michael, I'm Michael. I see a few new faces tonight, so welcome to the Sunday Night Sutra Study. Uh, every Sunday, we look at a different sutra, basically a, a different teaching of the Buddha. Uh, there's supposedly 84,000 different sutras, so we're taking them on one night at a time. Um, tonight, I don't know if we'll do this whole sutra. We'll see. I had said I was only going to do one sutra a night or like a different sutra each week. We'll, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. But tonight, tonight is a sutra just called, traditionally just called the Vimalakirti Sutra. Vimalakirti is a, is a guy. He's a, uh, a very interesting guy. He's sort of the star or the hero of this sutra. Uh, in Sanskrit, it's actually called the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra. Nirdesha, so Vimalakirti Nirdesha. Nirdesha usually means like advice or teachings, but there's kind of actually a better Sanskrit word for teachings. Nirdesha is like the advice of Vimalakirti or Vimalakirti's advice. This sutra is unique, truly unique among Buddhist sutras for a variety of reasons. Um, Two main reasons. This sutra never turned into a unique school of Buddhism. Most of the sutras, the, especially the Mahayana sutras that we've been looking at in the past, things like the Lotus Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, all those sutras became the centerpiece of a different school of Buddhism. So, uh, something like uh, Tiantai Buddhism or Tendai Buddhism in Japanese is founded on the Lotus Sutra. So that's all they use. They love it. Um, the the, the uh, Huayan school of Buddhism in China, the Qigong school in J- Japanese, it's called. They only use the Avatamsaka Sutra. It's like they're it, a whole school just on that sutra. Um, the, uh, all of the uh, Pure Land Sutras like that we talked about last week, the Sutra of Amitabha, the, su- the Sutra of Akshobhya, those all become revered schools unto themselves, where people just read the, the Akshobhya Buddha Sutra, they worship Akshobhya. It's an Akshobhya Buddha school, right? It would be a Pure Land school if you were here last week. That never happened with this sutra. As popular as this sutra has been, and man, has this sutra been popular, it never turned into a unique school. People... Um, never seem to have revered this sutra in the same way as all other sutras, meaning something like the Amitabha Sutra, the Sutra of the Buddha Amitabha. That sutra, people revere just the sutra, like the te- like the book. They won't even read it sometimes. They just hold it and, and worship it. That never happened with the Vimalakirti Sutra. Again, as popular as it was, it never became its own school. It never got revered as a, like a, one of those sacred holy texts. And yet, it was sort of one of the first sutras translated into Chinese, became very popular, uh, translated from Sanskrit into a variety of languages, and then brought to China. If you're a historian or if you're interested in history, 
you should know that there's pretty good evidence from a scholar's point of view that in the year 188, common era, so our common, e, you know, CE or AD, whatever, in the year 188, a monk named Lokashema came from Afghanistan, what is today Afghanistan. At the time, it was called Gandhara, the kingdom of Gandhara, centered in the city of what we now call Gandhar, Gandhara. That was the capital of Gandhara. This monk went from Gandhara to China, and in the year 188, he translated a copy of the Vimalakirti Sutra from Gandhari, the language of Gandhara, into Chinese. And that's the oldest known record of this sutra, is 188. Now, if you're a historian or a scholar like me, and you read or you learn that in the year 188, a monk had already traveled to China and was translating this sutra into Chinese, then the odds are this wasn't written in 187 or 186. It was probably written a ways before that, before it even probably got translated into Gandhari and before Lokashema went to China and translated into Chinese. So 188 is just the opening bid for how old this sutra is, if you will. All right? Again, if you're interested in that type of stuff. Um, the sutra, in a way, really speaks for itself. Um, if it's your first time here, um, you know, uh, you're at a little disadvantaged to folks who have been coming to these Sunday classes because the way I introduce these Sunday classes is that they are basically a, a big vocabulary lesson. The way I try to gear these Sunday night classes is going through Buddhist sutras to introduce everyone to the beautiful language of Buddhism, the metaphors of Buddhism, the similes, these ideas, trichiliocosm, billionfold world systems, and bodhisattvas, and pure lands, and all of this stuff. And the last few weeks, we were focusing a lot on the bodhisattva path, bodhisattvaism, bodhisattvaness. And then last week, I introduced the pure lands, this wild idea in Buddhism of these, these pure lands, these places that maybe they're meditative states, deep meditative states where you actually feel like you go to a different world. Maybe they are actually other worlds. Maybe they're other planets. Maybe they're other dimensions. Who knows? But that's what we talked about last week was this notion in Buddhism of these other realms, other dimensional spaces where there's other Buddhas, other bodhisattvas, and all of this, all of this Buddha Dharma going on. You needed to know all of that in order to appreciate the Vimalakirti Sutra. If you don't know what a bodhisattva is, if you've never heard of a Buddha land, all of these things, it makes a text like this a little difficult. But if you know all that, or you have like a, you know, a teacher to help you through it, this sutra, in my opinion, for me, this is my favorite sutra. There, I said it. <laughs> I was rereading the sutra in preparation for this, and my, I, my jaw literally kept falling open at how wonderful it is, how, how modern it is, actually, how it needs to be brought back, <laughs> uh, brought back up. And so that's what we're here to do. 
I'm going to be reading tonight from this translation, which was by Robert Thurman. And this translation is being done from Tibetan. There's a few translations from the Tibetan editions that are in English. And there's a few translations from the Chinese edition, the, in particular, the, a version by a guy named Kumar Jiva. And those are, well, if you compare them, they're slightly different, the, the Tibetan ones and the Chinese ones, but they're pretty similar. I'm going to be reading from this one because Robert Thurman preserves a lot of the technical language of Buddhism that we're now all very used to. If you read one by Burton Watson, the Vimalakirti Sutra translated from the Chinese by Burton Watson, that's the one I usually recommend. That one you could like read, go to bed. I mean, it's just, he, he almost pulls all the technical language out and makes it read like the story that it is. Because it is a, a fantastic story that sometimes gets obscured through and because of the difficult language. But again, because we know this language, it's going to be a lot funner to read from this one. Uh, and so that being said, you know, again, the sutra pretty much speaks for itself. Questions before I start? If you haven't said already, uh, do we know who wrote it? Ah, okay, great. Same question we always face with Buddhist <laughs> sutras. There's a number of ways to answer that. One is that 2,500 years ago in Magadha, there was the Buddha, and he said a bunch of Sutras. He, he said a bunch of teachings, and this is one of them. So the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, or, uh, you know, take your pick at that point. In terms of where these things come from, are these the products of enlightened minds? Are these things the products of people going to these pure lands and learning from these other Buddhas and then coming back to this world and writing them down? It, you take your pick. All I can tell you is, is that guaranteed as early as 188 AD, 188 of the common era, this book was very popular in Afghanistan, i.e. Gandhara, very popular in Central Asia, very popular in China. This sutra, and you'll see why in a minute, as soon as we get into this, you will start to see why this may have become very, very popular, right? So, but who wrote it? I don't know. Who wrote the Bible? Who wrote any of these things? At the beginning of the year, you kind of classify all this sort into eight categories. Uh -huh. Does it fall into the pure land uh, Buddhism? I would actually put this, if you were following that class and want to go back to it, I'd put this in the fifth school, actually, that you need to know all about the basics of Buddhism, the basic thinking of Buddhism. That's the first school. You need to know about the Bodhisattva path, the Pranya wisdom school. You need to know about the Pure Lands. That's the third school of Buddhism. But this sutra is also predicated on the very idea of upaya, uh, skillful means, which is the heart or the, it's the main teaching of the Lotus Sutra, which is the fourth school of Buddhism. So this basically is after all of that. So I put it pretty firmly in that fifth school of Buddhism if you're following that, which I'll do a review of that at some time, but don't get too hung up on that. This, uh, in the same way that this sutra did not develop its own school historically, and in the same way it didn't get revered historically, it's, you, it stands totally outside of the sutra world. Um, there's so many reasons for that. 
Uh, I'll maybe at the end of class, I'll give some theories on where I think this sutra maybe actually came from. But enough, enough. We, we got to do it. We got to get into it. Twelve chapters in the original. Um, oh, one more thing. The reason why I like this, this Tibetan version is that it is, Tibetan, if you don't know, is very close or much closer to Sanskrit than Chinese is. Chinese is a whole other language, obviously. Pictographic, all kinds of stuff going on. Tibetan and Sanskrit are sort of like cousins. And so coming from the Tibetan, this is sort of probably closer to what an original Vimalakirti read like. The reason why I mention that right now is, is that this has 12 chapters. The Chinese editions have 14. They added two extra chapters on to the end. If you're curious about those, then when we finish this, we can talk about those two extra chapters. But, but just know that this is probably reflective of a more originary Vimalakirti Sutra. First chapter, Buddha lands. So this is picking directly up after last week's talk on Buddha lands. Thus have I heard, at one time, the Buddha was in residence in the gardens of Amrapali, in the city of Vaishali, attended by a great gathering. Of bhikkhus, there were 8,000 all arhats. They were free from impurities and, and afflictions, and all had attained self-mastery. Their minds were entirely liberated by perfect knowledge. They were calm and dignified like royal elephants. They had accomplished their work, done what they had come to do, cast off their burdens, attained their goals, and totally destroyed the bonds of existence. They all had attained the utmost perfection of every form of mind control. Of bodhisattvas, there were 32,000 great spiritual heroes who were universally acclaimed. They were dedicated through the penetrating activity of their great superknowledges and were sustained by the grace of the Buddha. Guardians of the city of the Dharma, they upheld the true doctrine and their great teachings resounded like the lion's roar throughout the 10 directions. Without having to be asked, they were natural Kalyana Mitra, spiritual friends of all living beings. They maintained unbroken the succession of the three jewels, conquering devils and foes, and overwhelming all critics. Um, we got a lot of ground to cover tonight. There are a few pages here of accolades of these bodhisattvas, these great beings, their voices, perfect in diction, speaking fearlessly like lions, experts in the ways of the Dharma. Uh, they had crossed the terrifying abyss of the bad uh, transmigrations, and yet they had assumed reincarnation vol voluntarily in all migrations for the sake of helping living beings. Great kings of medicine, understanding all the sicknesses of the passions, they could apply the medicine of the Dharma appropriately to all. Uh, they were inexhaustible minds of limitless virtues, and they glorified innumerable Buddha fields with the splendor of these virtues. Uh, they conferred great benefit when seen, heard, or even approached. Were one to extol them for innumerable hundreds of thousands of myriads of kalpas, one could still not exhaust their mighty flood of virtues. And then it says these bodhisattvas were named, bam, and we just get a long, you know, 
Samadarshana, Asamadarshana, da 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 da. All these names, names upon names upon names, names I can't even pronounce. Avilokiteshvara was there. Mahatamastamaprapta was there. Brahmajala was there. Those are some like kind of star bodhisattvas. Uh, Maitreya was there. He's a star bodhisattva. Manjushri, he's star bodhisattva, and so forth. Thirty-two thousand in all. There were also gathered there 10,000 Brahma gods and their head Brahma called Sikin, who had come from the Ashoka universe with his four sectors to see, venerate, and serve the Buddha and to hear the Dharma from his own mouth. There were 1,200 chakras. Uh, there were Lokapalas, Devas, Nagas, Yakshas, Gandharavas, Asuras, Garudas, Kimnaras, Maharagas. And finally, there was the fourfold community consisting of the bhikshus, bhikshunis, laymen, and laywomen. That was just who was there. The Lord Buddha, then surrounded and venerated by these multitudes of many hundreds of thousands of living beings, sat upon a majestic lion throne and began to teach the Dharma, dominating all the multitudes just as Sumeru, the king of mountains, looms high over the oceans, the Lord Buddha shone, radiated, and glittered as he sat upon his magnificent lion throne. Thereupon, the Lichavi Bodhisattva named Ratnakara with 500 Lichavi youths. Remember, Lichavi is where, uh, kind of where we are. Each holding a precious parasol made of seven different kinds of jewels. So if you don't know, parasol is like an umbrella, but for the sun. A precious parasol made of seven different kinds of jewels. So they came forth uh, from the city of Vaishali and presented uh, this guy, presented himself at the grove of Amrapali. And each of these approached the Buddha, bowed at his feet, circumambulated him clockwise seven times, then laid down his precious parasol, his precious jeweled parasol in offering and withdrew to one side. See in this picture developed? These, all these 500 youths show up. They all have these jeweled umbrellas. They all put their umbrellas before the Buddha. And as soon as all those precious parasols had been laid down, suddenly, by the miraculous power of the Buddha, they were transformed into a single precious canopy so great that it formed a covering for this entire billion-fold world galaxy. The surface of the entire billion-fold world galaxy was reflected in the interior of the great precious canopy where the total content of this galaxy could be seen. Limitless mansions of suns, moons, and stellar bodies, the realms of the devas, nagas, yakshas, gandharavas, asuras, garudas, kinaras, and maharagas, as well as the realms of the great four maharajas, the king of mountains, Mount Simaru, Mount Himradri, Mount Muchilinda, Mount Mahamuchilinda, Mount Gandamanda, uh, all of Ma uh, Mount Mahachakavara, all the great oceans, rivers, bays, torrents, streams, brooks, and springs. Finally, all the villages, suburbs, cities, capitals, provinces, and wildernesses. All this could be clearly seen by everyone. And all the voices of all the Buddhas of all the ten directions could be heard proclaiming their teachings of the Dharma in all the worlds. The sounds reverberating in the space beneath this great precious jeweled canopy. 
as this vision of the magnificent miracle affected by the supernatural power of the Lord Buddha, the entire host was ecstatic, enraptured, astonished, delighted, satisfied, and filled with awe and pleasure. They all bowed down to the, to the Buddha, withdrew to one side with their palms pressed together, and gazed upon him with fixed attention. The Lichavi Bodhisattva, the main one that brought the parasol, he goes on to recite a poem about how you know, pure are the eyes of the Buddha. He's like, oh, the Buddha, he's so smart, so beautiful. So this goes on for pages. I would love to read to you every word of this, but I will try, I'm trying to get to you the story tonight. There's so many teachings, and each, each little part of this is worth reading, by the way. But he, he recites this, this poem, uh, and then the young Lachavi Ratnakara, having celebrated the Buddha with these verses, further addressed him, Lord, these 500 young Lichavis are truly on their way to unexcelled perfect enlightenment. And they have asked, what is the Bodhisattva's purification of a Buddha land? Please, Lord, explain. Explain to them the Bodhisattva's purification of a Buddha land. So the question pertains to what we were talking about last week, which was this idea of when a Buddha appears in a world, the idea is that world or that world system can become purified. Eventually, even the hell realms can be eradicated, the lower rebirths can be eradicated, and all of this. So this question is in regard to that purification process. How does that happen? Is what the, the Lichavi Bodhisattva named Ratna, what's his name? Uh, Ratnakara. That's what he asked, right? He's like, how does that whole thing work? The purification of Buddha lands. I'm curious. And the Buddha goes on to give this answer that if you read through all of this, it reads something like, um, oh, you know, for uh, da, 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 a Bodhisattva's Buddha land is a field of positive thought. It is a field of high resolve. The Bodhisattva's Buddha land is a field of virtuous application, a field of morality, tolerance, effort. And so it starts going through all these virtues and qualities of a Bodhisattva. And the Buddha gives this Lichavi Ratnakara a lesson in these virtues of a Bodhisattva. I encourage you to read it. But this first opening chapter ends with a wonderful little part that it kind of, in a way, encapsulates this whole sutra. And if you're new to reading Mahayana sutras, the opening chapter of a Mahayana sutra embodies the whole chapter, almost always. So they lay out where it takes place, but there's a way in which, for example, this sutra now takes place where? <laughs> Underneath a giant jeweled canopy that has been miraculously produced that is reflecting this entire billion-fold universe so that everybody can see it. That's where this sutra takes place, right? So there's a way in which the description of where this sutra takes place is a description of the entire message of the sutra, kind of uh, secretly, or put in a very secret way. But then what happens after the Buddha gives this discourse on all the virtues of Buddhas or Bodhisattvas and how Bodhisattvas purify Buddha lands, um, thereupon, magically influenced by the Buddha, the venerable monk named Shariputra, which many of us know Shariputra, 
he had this thought, magically influenced by the Buddha. He had this thought. Now, if Buddha lands are pure only to the extent that the mind of the bodhisattva in them is pure, then when Shakyamuni Buddha was engaged in the career of a bodhisattva, his mind must have been impure. Otherwise, how could this Buddha field appear to be so impure? The Buddha, knowing telepathically the thought of Venerable Shariputra, said to him, Shariputra, what do you think? Is it because the sun and the moon are impure that those blind from birth do not see them? No, Lord, it is not so. The fault lies with those blind from birth, not with the sun and the moon. The Buddha declared, in that same way, Shariputra, the fact that some living beings do not behold the splendid display of virtues of the Buddha field of the Tathagata is due to their own ignorance. It is not the fault of the Buddha. Shariputra, the Buddha land of the Tathagata is pure. You just don't see it. Then the Brahmin Sikin, this is the Brahma, Brahma, like God Brahma, Sikin. He said to Venerable Shariputra, Reverend Shariputra, do not say that the Buddha land of the Tathagata is impure. Reverend Shariputra, the Buddha land of the Tathagata is pure. I see the splendid expanse of the Buddha land of the Lord Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni as equal to the splendor of, for example, the abodes of the highest deities. Then the Venerable Shariputra said to the Brahman Sikin, As for me, O Brahma, I see this great earth with its highs and lows, its thorns, its precipices, its peaks, its abysses, as if it were entirely filled with shit. It has a technical term there, but I looked it up. And what he says is, I see this whole world as if it's filled of excrement. Everything is excrement. Right? Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> so if, if you've been following through our, our classes, you know there's an interesting critique going on here concerning bodhisattva, the bodhisattva path, and the so-called shravaka path, the kind of old-school Buddhism, the Theravada path of the voice hearers. Voice hearers here, Shariputra is representing this very Theravadan view of this world, which is kind of negative. The whole idea of Theravada is that you view this world as a source of your suffering, impermanent, and there's a way in which the Theravada tradition can be critiqued as being a little too negative, a little too down on this world. So that's a little subtle discourse that's actually going on here, FYI. Just to repeat, Shariputra said to Brahma, As for me, O Brahma, I see this earth with its highs and lows, its thorns, its precipices, its peaks and its abysses, as if it's entirely filled with excrement. The Brahma then replied, The fact that you see such a Buddha land as this, as if it were so impure, Reverend Shariputra, is a sure sign that there are highs and lows in your mind. And that your positive thought in regard to the to Buddha to sorry, 
and that your positive thought in regard to Buddha knowledge is not pure either. Reverend Shariputra, those, who mind, those whose minds are impartial toward all living beings and whose positive thoughts towards, the, towards Buddha knowledge are pure, see this Buddha land as, pure, as perfectly pure. Thereupon, the Lord... So you got to imagine, this is a famous moment. you got to imagine Buddha's wrapped up, right? Boom. And so thereupon, the Lord touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe with his big toe. So you will sometimes see an image of the Buddha with his feet undone and his big toe touching. Boom, like that. And if you ever see that image, which is hard to catch because a lot of time bodhisattvas have a foot on one ground, but there's images of the Buddha with one, his big toe, and it's this moment. Thereupon the Lord touched the ground of this billion-fold world galactic universe with his big toe, and suddenly it was transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels, a magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems, until it resembled the universe of the, the Buddha Ratnavyuha, <laughs> and, his, and his Buddha land called Anatanagunataravyuha. Everyone in the entire assembly was filled with wonder, each perceiving himself seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses. Then the Buddha said to the Venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, do you see the splendor and the virtues of this Buddha land? And Shariputra replied, I see it, Lord. Here before me is a display of splendor such as I have never seen before. Then the Buddha said, Shariputra, this Buddha land is always this pure, but the Tathagata makes it appear to be spoiled by many faults in order to bring about the maturity of inferior living beings. For example, Shariputra, the gods of the 33 levels of heaven all take their food from a single precious vessel. Yet the nectar which nourishes each one differs according to the differences of merits each has, acc has accumulated. Just so, Shariputra, living beings born in the same Buddha land see the splendor of the virtues of that Buddha land of the Buddha according to their own degrees of purity. When this splendor, when this splendor of the beauty of the virtues of the Buddha land shone forth, 84,000 beings conceived the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment, and the 500 Lichavi youths who had accompanied the young Lichavi Ratnakara all attained the conformative tolerance of ultimate birthlessness. Then the Lord withdrew his miraculous power, and at once the Buddha land was restored to its usual appearance. Then both men and gods who subscribed to the Shravaka way thought, Alas! All constructed things are impermanent. That's like my favorite line. <laughs> Thereby, 32,000 living beings... So that's what the, the Shravakas thought. Everything is impermanent. Thereby, so... And then also, 32,000 living beings purified their immaculate, undistorted Dharma eye in regard to all things. The 8,000 bhikkhus were liberated from their mental defilements, attaining the state of non-grasping, and the 84,000 living beings who were devoted to the grandeur of the Buddha land, having understood that all things are by nature but magical creations, all conceived in their own minds, 
the spirit of unexcelled, totally perfect enlightenment. And that's just the first chapter. And again, it is a, a, a narrative description of the import of the whole sutra. Questions just about that. I was curious about the pure lands and, I mean, how do, I don't know if it's scholars, or interpret what exactly are the pure lands? Because I was wondering, and it seems like this chapter kind of alludes to the fact that it's different states of mind as opposed to, you were talking about Buddhas from maybe different planets or mm-hmm. different, so Well, it? <laughs> it's very, I mean, it's a great question definitely you should know that this Vimalakirti Sutra is is coming after a great wave of Pure Land Buddhism has arisen in which people are jetting off to other Buddha lands. Maybe they're really going off to other lands. They claim to be. Uh, again, maybe they're meditative states. There's really... I mean... This, this Pure Land talk... Is, it's very interesting because... I don't want to get too waylaid with it, but the idea... I just want to reinforce this one point. How can I say this? If I were to say to you, if I were to say to you, you know, well, some people think that these Buddha lands they're referring to are are these planets. Mm -hmm. And and you you might say, well, that's pretty far-fetched, right? Or you might say, oh, that's pretty crazy, right? But what I would like to encourage everyone to think about is that from, not even from this point of view, but from the Pure Land stuff from last week, that Pure Land school is actually, would like you to think about your belief in planets, your belief in your cosmos. We have this notion that we've got it all figured out in a way that even though we've probably, most of us never even looked through a telescope, that we know what you know, those things are up there, and we know what's possible on them and not possible, right? So that if I say to you, like, oh, there's people who claim that Venus is a Buddha land and that through meditation you can get there, you're like, you're right. you know how much jet fuel you need to get to Venus? The idea is that from a Pure Land perspective, the belief in jet fuel and the belief in Venus as a planet with an atmosphere and all of those things is equally a pure land fantasy because have you been to Venus? Have you, again, have you even looked at it through a telescope? To, so there's a way in which I like pure land Buddhism because rather than trying to adopt a different mythology of pure lands, it points the, the, the finger at our already existing mythologies, if you will. If you know what I mean, like our, the worldview that we have and dare I say the cosmology that we have of this cosmos we're in and where we stand in it, we all have a lot of faith in our cosmology. Meaning that the, whatever we think is going on, like if, if you think it's planets and jet fuel and rockets and lunar orbit probes and like that's your worldview, 
that's great, but just recognize that it's founded on a degree of faith in that you've never been to these places, you've probably never even actually, you're, you're taking a lot of other people's mythologies as your own and saying, yeah, I believe in planets, I believe in all of these things. And Pure Land Buddhism would like to hold a mirror up to your belief structure and it's just looking at that. And so, for example, to just tie it back to this little narrative that happened here, Shariputra is sitting there going like, no, 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 this, is, this place is this shithole. And by doing this little toe touch, the idea is like, sorry, Shariputra, your mind's a shithole. <laughs> and insofar as your mind's a shithole, you're going to see a giant shithole. So better get to work on your mind. So there's a way in which, is it other planets, other dimensions? It doesn't matter. It, like, it, it's about, you know, Buddha, all of this Buddhism, especially the Mahayana, is about having a much looser grasp on our views, which is called our, our drishtis. A drishti is a view, an opinion. So, you know, a political opinions, things like this that we're holding on to really tightly that then... When those are challenged, we get really worked up. Buddhism is like, yo, remember, <laughs> relax. <laughs> don't grip. And yeah, don't grip your stuff. Don't grip yourself. But also don't grip your ideas about what you think is going on per se. And so there's a looser way of holding on to information in Buddhism where it's like, maybe it's another dimension. Maybe it's another planet. Maybe I don't know what the fuck's going on. Maybe. You know, it's just a loose kind of Socratic, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything, right? Socrates is very famous for saying, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything. So that's sort of a, a Buddhist mentality, is this sort of like, I'm never going to hold on to anything and say, like, oh, there's no Buddha lands, or there's, there, there's no way there could be a Buddha on Venus. It, it doesn't mean you have to say, okay, yes, there is a Buddha on Venus. It's like, no, 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 just be open to the possibility that... There's all kinds of stuff going on, right? So that's kind of the message of this first chapter. But again, it's the whole sutra in one. More? All right. Because you haven't even met the star of the show. At that time, there lived in the great city of Vaishali a certainly Chavi named Vimvalakirti. Having served the ancient Buddhas, he had generated the roots of virtue by honoring them and making offerings to them. He had attained tolerance as well as eloquence. He played with the great superknowledges. He had attained the power of incantations and fearlessness. He had conquered all demons and opponents. He had penetrated the profound way of the Dharma. He was liberated through the transcendence of wisdom. Having integrated his realization with upaya, skillful means, he was expert in knowing the thoughts and actions of all living beings knowing the strengths or weaknesses of their faculties and being gifted with unrivaled eloquence, he taught the Dharma appropriately to each. Having applied himself energetically to the Mahayana, he understood it and accomplished his task with great finesse. He lived with the deportment of a Buddha and his superior intelligence was as wide as an ocean. He was praised, honored, and commended by all the Buddhas and was respected by Indra, Brahma, and the four Lokapalas. In order to develop living beings with his upaya, his skillful means, he lived in the great city of Vaishali. 
His wealth was inexhaustible for the purpose of sustaining the poor and the helpless. He observed a pure morality in order to protect the immoral. He maintained tolerance and self-control in order to reconcile beings who were angry, cruel, violent, and brutal. He blazed with energy in order to inspire people who were lazy. He maintained concentration, mindfulness, and meditation in order to sustain the mentally troubled. He attained decisive wisdom in order to sustain the foolish. He wore the white clothes of a layman, yet lived impeccably like a religious devotee, like a monk. He lived at home, but remained aloof from the realm of desire, the realm of form, and the formless realm. He had a son, a wife, and attendants, yet always maintained his continence. He appeared to be surrounded by servants, yet he lived in solitude. He appeared to be adorned with ornaments, yet always he was endowed with the auspicious marks of a holy man. He seemed to eat and drink, yet always took nourishment from the taste of meditation. He made his appearance at the fields of sports and in the casinos, but, in his, aim, but his aim was always to nurture those who were attached to games and to gambling. He visited, the fashionable, he visited all the fashionable teachers, yet always kept unswerving loyalty to the Buddha. He understood the mundane and transcendental sciences and esoteric practices, yet always took pleasure in the delights of the Dharma. He mixed in all crowds, yet was respected as foremost of them all. In order to be in harmony with people, he associated with elders, with those of middle age, and with the young, yet always spoke in harmony with the Dharma. He engaged in all sorts of businesses, yet he had no interest in profit or possessions. To train living beings, he would appear at crossroads and on street corners, and to protect them, he participated in government. To turn people away from the Hinayana and to engage them in the Mahayana, he appeared among listeners as, and teachers of the Dharma. Uh, he taught children, visiting all the schools. To demonstrate the evils of desire, he even entered brothels. To establish drunkards he, in correct mindfulness, he also entered all the cabarets. He was honored as the businessman among businessmen because he demonstrated the priority of the Dharma. He was honored as the landlord among landlords because he renounced the aggressiveness of ownership. He was honored as the warrior among warriors because he cultivated endurance, determination, and fortitude. He was honored as the aristocrat among aristocrats because he su suppressed pride, vanity, and arrogance. He was honored as the official among officials because he regulated the functions of government according to the Dharma. He was honored as the prince of princes because he, res because he reversed their attachment to royal pleasures and to sovereign power. He was honored as a eunuch in the royal harem because he taught the young ladies according to the Dharma. He was compatible with ordinary people because he appreciated the excellence of ordinary merits. He was honored as the Indra among Indras because he showed them the temporality of their lordship. He was honored as the Brahma among Brahmas because he showed them the special excellence of Buddha knowledge. He was honored as the Lokapala among Lokapalas because he fostered the development of all living beings. Thus lived the Lichavi Vimalakirti in the great city of Vaishali, endowed with an infinite knowledge of Upaya, skillful means. At that time, out of this very Upaya, Vimalakirti manifested himself as if he were sick. 
to inquire after his health, the king, the officials, the lords, the youths, the aristocrats, the householders, the businessmen, the town folk, the country folk, and thousands of other living beings came forth from the great city of Vaishali and called on the invalid Vimalakirti. And when they arrived, Vimalakirti taught them the Dharma, beginning his discourse with the actuality of the four elements. Questions? This is Vimalakirti. This is our hero. In fact, the Buddha makes little appearance in this sutra. And this sutra is called the teachings or advice of Vimalakirti because it's exactly that. It's the teachings of Vimalakirti, not the Buddha. And you just heard who this guy is. He's hanging out in casinos, brothels. He's at the dog races. He's everywhere, right? Wearing the white clothes of a layman and yet revered as god of gods. It'll become clear as we go through, but one of the reasons why this sutra became so popular is because its hero was not a monk, an unobtainable, shaved head, perfect immorality monk. The hero is somebody that looks just like you. He's got a house, dog, all that. So the Malakirti is a very interesting character. Was he a real person? There's argument that he was a real person. I don't think he was a real person. Um, I think the Malakirti is here now because we're reading this. I think that's who the Malakirti is, is the person that manifests when this sutra is read. That's a Mahayana idea that this isn't a historical document. It's a, uh, like a, a living speech act of sorts that the reading of it, especially out loud like this is incarnating the Malakirti. And so when this gets happening, that's Vimalakirti. Is Vimalakirti real? Remains to be seen. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you read like the last line or two? And then it talks about the, did you say the four elements? So well, that's what his Dharma talk is about to drop some knowledge on the four elements. So. Okay. Yeah. Do you want me to do the Dharma talk? What? <laughs> you want me to read his Dharma talk? It's what I was going to do next. Unless there's questions. Yeah? Okay, so this is our hero. Oh, by the way, oh, I wanted to pass this around. Um, uh, even though, again, the sutra, the sutra became very popular, people were copying out all the time, it basically became like pop Buddhism because, again, for laity, for lay Buddhists, this was like, now you're talking my language, you know, enlightenment in my bed at home. Yeah. Um, I'll pass this around. This is from a larger kind of image, but this is Vimalakirti, kind of a traditional representation of him. Uh, this is a bodhisattva named Manjushri. I'll pass it around just so you can get a visual. This idea of Vimalakirti, the sick, the sick man that everybody goes to visit, that's what this sutra is about. That this this guy, this we're gonna we're very soon about to find out he's a bodhisattva. We're going to, you know, this guy's like, um, uh, you know, he's full of tricks. He's full of stuff. He's full of all kinds of stuff going on. And so he does this thing where he makes himself appear sick. And I just, I need to do this because if you don't, if you don't pick up on it, it's not quite as funny. Keep in mind this, this metaphor of the Buddha as the medicine king. The Dharma as medicine, this idea of uh, suffering, that we all suffer from the illness called life, 
We, we all have the same, like, cold. <coughs> we also have the same illness. It's called life. It's called being a human. It's terminal, right? And so the Buddha talks about the Dharma as medicine for that suffering, medicine for that illness. And so the Buddha is like a doctor. So this language of the Malakirti pretending like he's sick and, I mean, the, the idea is he's supposed to be pretending like he has a cold or a flu. Like, that's the idea. But he's sick, right? And so all, everybody shows up from the town. Everybody from Vaishali comes because they've heard that Vimalakirti's sick. And Vimalakirti drops this on them, right? Friends, this body is so impermanent, fragile, unworthy of your confidence, and it's feeble. It is so insubstantial, perishable, short-lived, painful, filled with disease, and subject to change. Thus, my friends, as this body is only a vessel of many illnesses, wise men do not rely on it. This body is like a ball of foam, unable to bear any pressure. It's like a water bubble, not remaining for very long. It's like a mirage born from the appearances of the passions. It's like the trunk of the plantain tree having no core. Alas, this body is like a machine, a nexus of bones and tendons. It's like a magical illusion consisting of falsifications. It's like a dream being an unreal vision. It's like a reflection being the image of our former actions. It is like an echo being dependent on conditioning. It's like a cloud being characterized by turbulence and dissolution. It's like a flash of lightning being unstable and decaying every moment. The body is ownerless, being the product of a variety of conditions. This body is inert like the earth, selfless like water, lifeless like fire, impersonal like the wind, and non-substantial like space. This body is unreal, being a, co a collocation of the four elements. It is void, not existing as self or as self-possessed. It is inanimate, being like grass, trees, walls, clods of earth, and hallucinations. It is insensate, being driven like a windmill. It is filthy, being an agglomeration of pus and excrement. It is false, being fated to be broken and destroyed. In spite of being anointed and massaged, it is afflicted by the 404 diseases. It is like an ancient well, constantly overwhelmed by old age. Its duration is never certain, certain only in its end in death. This body is a combination of five aggregates, 18 elements, and 12 sense media, which are comparable. Oh, sorry, I wanted to read that one differently. This body is a combination of the five aggregates that are like murderers, 18 elements that are like poisonous snakes, and 12 sense media that are like an empty town. Therefore, you should be revulsed by such a body. You should despair of it, and you should arouse your admiration for the body of the Tathagata. Friends, the body of a Tathagata is the body of the Dharma, born of knowledge. The body of a Tathagata is born of the stores of merit and wisdom. 
It is born of morality, meditation, wisdom, of the liberations, and of the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is born of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It is born of charity, discipline, and self-control. It is born of the path of the ten virtues. It is born of patience and gentleness. It is born of the roots of virtue planted by solid efforts. It's born of the concentrations, the liberations, the meditations, and the dhyanas. It's born of learning, wisdom, and liberative techniques. It's born of the 37 aids to enlightenment. It is born of mental quiescence and transcendental analysis, shamatha and vipassana. It is born of the 10 powers, the four fearlessnesses, and the 18 special qualities of a Buddha. It is born of all the transcendences. It is born from sciences and superknowledges. It is born of abandonment of evil qualities and the collection of good qualities. It is born of truth. It is born of reality. It is born of conscious awareness. Friends, the body of a Tathagata is born of innumerable good works. Towards such a body, you should turn your aspirations. And in order to eliminate the sickness of all the passions of all living beings, you should conceive the spirit of unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. And while the Lachavi Vimalakirti thus taught the Dharma to those who had come to inquire about his sickness, many hundreds of thousands of living beings conceived the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. So that's how Vimalakirti drops the Dharma. Right? Questions? Some pretty classic uh, pranya wisdom in terms of the selflessness of the, not just the self, but the selflessness of the whole situation. Right? So, body's impermanent, destined to die, sick. You can identify with that, or you can identify with your wisdom side of yourself, your, the enlightened side of yourself. So, the basic idea in Buddhism is that insofar as we are identifying with this body and the things of this world, we are fated to die with this body and the things of this world. But there's this thing, this, we have this choice to not identify with that which is impermanent. And we can identify, well actually, if I want to speak correctly, we can practice non-identification. And actually not identify with anything. And that would be equivalent to all of the things that uh, Vimalakirti just said in regards to the body of the Tathagata, body of the Buddha. So this is definitely a far cry from any kind of Buddhism that is thinking of the Buddha as a historical figure made of flesh and bones. Right? The notion that the Buddha was a historical person from last week or 2,000 years ago, it doesn't matter, but the notion that the Buddha is a dude from way back when, if that's the conception of the Buddha, then the Buddha is always going to be a dude from way back when and always only a dude from way back when. The Mahayana is, is noted for not saying that's the Buddha back then. There's this special term for Tathagata, which is the it's a little different than the Buddha, actually. Tathagata is, I would, I would say Tathagata is also when I'm reading the Dharma and Dharma is in play, that's the Tathagata. That's the Buddha. 
I, I mean, I'm just quoting the Dharma. So in, I get to be a vehicle, but insofar as the Buddha said and thought about and the Dharma wheels turning, that's the Tathagata. That's the Buddha. I've, I've said before in the Mahayana tradition, they treat these things. I'm holding up a sutra. I'm holding up a book. They treat these things like reliquaries. The relics of the Buddha are in here. So the Theravadins, they like to take little bits of bone. Actually, the Mahayanans love this too. All Buddhists love to do this. But a lot of Buddhists like to take little bits of bone that are said to be a little finger bone of the Buddha. I've seen actually the Buddha's phalanx. I, the bone, this bone, the phalanx, I've seen supposedly the Buddha's phalanx. I've, I've prayed to the Buddha's phalanx. Um, so there is a tradition in Buddhism of taking actual relics and putting them in a reliquary, a, an urn or a glass, and then making homage to the relic. But in Mahayana, they talk a lot about these are the relics of the Buddha. This is a reliquary. Pray to this, not flesh and bone. Dude, we're trying not to identify with flesh and bone and that which decays and dies. Let's identify with our enlightenment, with, with enlightenment. That's the idea of the, the Dharma, little Dharma talk that Vimalakirti just gave. But keep in mind, I would like to note, he gave that Dharma talk to a bunch of townsfolk from Vaishali. So if anybody was like, wait a minute, Michael, you were just saying Shariputra was kind of a loser because he was saying that this whole world's full of shit and pus. But Vimalakirti just said, how is Vimalakirti so cool? Vimalakirti was giving a discourse to a bunch of people and he was encouraging them not to identify with this flesh body full of pus and shit and all that and identify with dharma, to identify with enlightenment. That, um, the, your ability to conceive of the dharma, your ability to conceive of the dharma, that's it. Identify with that because that's what they're talking about in terms of consciousness and mind. The idea is, is that there's a spark of light. Consciousness is light, light, but it's light from the inside. And the idea is that you can identify with that consciousness as a, as a precursor to not identifying at all. Right? I'm trying to watch my words here. But the idea here is, is not to identify with, at least don't identify with this. Right? Questions? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of questions. Back in the back. We got one in the back. There's this, this notion that mind and body are the same thing, and you know, it seems to be contrary to that. No, no, no. Well, because I hear. You, you, you are the Buddha somehow because you need that, right? Or, or your body. I was just invoking the Buddha. I'm not saying I am a Buddha, but. No, but I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, or sorry, Vilam Vimalakirti, you said, oh, he's living uh, through the fact that you read it, so it's your body, right, that does that right now. Is there a difference? Oh, I just mean Vimalakirti's in the room. Like when this is happening, he's in the room. I'm not saying I'm him. I'm not saying, I'm just saying that there's a way in which evoking these words puts him in the room. And there's a way in which you can be like, what do you mean? Well, I'm just saying that there's a, he is in the room. The words are in the room. It's just the, the value or the weight at which you give that. And what I'm suggesting is that from a Mahayana point of view, when these ideas are happening, they are 
present. That, that, that that's actually what they're talking about, not events from the past. This is, an, this is an event, not from the past. It's an event waiting to happen. There's so much potential in here. There's so much potential in here that it is an, an event waiting to happen. It is a discourse waiting to happen. And the minute I crack it, and st- thus have I heard, oh, it's going, it's happening. That's a Mahayana point of view that these are not records of past events. They are potential present events. Sounds good to me. Well, I was just confused about right now, this is separate. That is separate from our body. Oh, well, we're going back to that. No, no, no. Uh, There's mind, there's consciousness, there's thinking. It's all, there's no mind-body problem per se in Buddhism. But what I'm talking about is there's a little enlightenment spark in each of us, which can be identified by like curiosity and inquiry and things like that, that it's when, when, when you hear some of this Dharma and then little things start to go off and you're like, but wait a minute, that would mean, but that would mean that whatever's happened, that's enlightened. Those are little sparks of enlightenment that you could grab onto and identify with where that's coming from. And Buddhism will say, well, that's coming from your Buddha nature. The fact that we all have potential Buddha-ness in us. Buddha curiosity coming out. So it's not a mind-body thing. I'm, I'm not talking about mind. I'm talking about enlightenment. It, it's not even possessed by you in a way. All right, we're getting too far afield. This is, this is <laughs> few, let's, let's go through a few more. So here's what happens. Vimalakirti gives his uh, little Dharma talk and everybody's loving it, right? And then chapter three. Then... Bilichavi Vimalakirti thought to himself, I'm sick, lying on my bed in pain, yet the Buddha, the saint, the perfectly accomplished one, does not consider me or take pity on me, and sends no one to inquire about my illness. The Lord, the Buddha, knew this thought in the mind of Vimalakirti and said to the Venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, why don't you go and inquire about the illness of the Lichavi Vimalakirti? And what proceeds here is a series of the Buddha asking each of his disciples one by one, saying, hey, why don't you go check on Vimalakirti? And so, for example, um, uh, Shariputra says, uh, Lord, I'm a little reluctant <laughs> to go ask the Lichavi Vimalakirti about his illness. Why? Well, I remember one day I was sitting at the front of a tree in the forest, absorbed in contemplation. And the Lichavi Vimalakirti came to the foot of the tree and said to me, Shariputra, that's not the way to absorb yourself in contemplation. You should absorb yourself in contemplation so that neither body nor mind appear anywhere in the triple world. You should absorb yourself in contemplation in such a way that you can manifest all ordinary behavior without forsaking your cessation. You should absorb yourself in contemplation in such a way that you can manifest the nature of an ordinary person without abandoning your cultivated spiritual nature. You should absorb yourself in contemplation so that the mind neither settles within nor moves with, without toward external forms. You should absorb, so he goes on and on, just all these different things. 
You should absorb yourself in contemplation in such a way that you are released in liberation without abandoning the passions that are the province of this world. Reverend Shariputra, those who absorb themselves in contemplation in such a way are declared by the Buddha to be truly absorbed in contemplation. Lord, when I heard this teaching, I was unable to reply and I remained silent. Therefore, I'm a little reluctant to go see the Lichavi Vimalakirti. <laughs> so then, next one. I'm going to do one more of these because uh, just to give you a little bit. But they, it's a whole chapter of why each of the Shravakas, each of the early Theravada Buddhists, are like, mm, no, I, I can't. So Madhulyayana, who is the Buddha's other attendant, Shariputra is the Buddha's right-hand man, and Madhulyayana is the Buddha's left-hand man, by the way. So uh, the Buddha says, Magulyayana, why don't you go check on, on Vimalakirti? And uh, Magulyayana says, Lord, I'm a little reluctant to go check on Vimalakirti. Why? Because I remember one day, <clears throat> so funny. So I remember one day when I was teaching the Dharma to some householders dressed in white in a square in the great city of Vaishali. And the Lichavi Vimalakirti came along and said to me, Magulyayana, that's not the way to teach the Dharma to householders in their white clothes. The Dharma must be taught according to reality. Reverend, Reverend Magulyayana, the Dharma is without living beings because it is free from the dust of living beings. It's selfless because it is free of the dust of desire. It is lifeless because it is free of birth and death. It is without personalities because it dispenses with past origins and future destinations. The Dharma is peace and pacification because it is free from desire. It does not become an object because it is free of words and letters. It is inexpressible and it transcends all movement of the mind. The Dharma, the Dharma is omniscient because it's like infinite space. It's without color, mark, shape, because it is free from all processes. It is without the concept of mine because it is free of the habitual notion of possession. It's without the, it, it is without ideation because it's free of mind, thought, and consciousness. It's incomparable because it has no antithesis. It is without presumption of conditionality because it does not conform to causes. It permeates evenly all things because all are included in the ultimate realm. It conforms to reality by means of the process of nonconformity. It abides at the Dharma Dhatu, the limit of reality, for it is utterly without fluctuation. It's immovable because it is independent of the six objects of sense. It is without coming and going. It never stands still. Da -da 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 -da. Sorry, sorry to, to cut him off, but Maguyana, how could there be a teaching in regard to such a Dharma as this? Reverend Maguyana, even the expression to teach the Dharma is presumptuous. <laughs> and those who listen to it listen to presumption. Maguyana, where there are no presumptuous words, there is no teacher of the Dharma, no one to listen, and no one to understand. It is, it, it is as if an illusory person were to teach the Dharma to an illusory person. <laughs> Therefore, you should teach the Dharma by keeping your mind on this. You should be adept in regard to the spiritual faculties of all living beings. By means of the correct vision of the wisdom eye 
manifesting the great compassion, acknowledging the benevolent activity of the Buddha, purifying your intentions, understanding the definitive expressions of the Dharma. You should teach the Dharma in order to in order that the continuity of the three jewels may never be interrupted. Lord, when Vimalakirti had discoursed thus, 800, 800 householders in the crowd conceived the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment, and I myself was speechless. Therefore, Lord, I'm indeed a little reluctant to go see, to inquire about the illness of Lichavi Vimalakirti. Again, one by one, this bodhisattva of non-dual pranya wisdom schools all the shravakas, all the Buddha's original disciples, one by one, until finally, boom. Um, in the same way, the rest of the 500 disciples were reluctant to go to the Lichavi Vimalakirti, and each told the Buddha his own adventure, recounting all his conversations with Vimalakirti. So then we go to chapter 4, the bodhisattvas. So since none of the Srivakas were willing to go, the Buddha says, then the Buddha said to the Bodhisattva, Maitreya. Now, if you don't remember, Maitreya is that guy, the future Buddha. So there's a whole um, kind of mythology, if you will, or actually eschatology in Buddhism that there's, that Buddhas appear in this world, in this Buddha land, they appear very rarely. Some Buddha lands, they get them all the time. But this one, we only get it very rarely. The Buddha, Shakyamuni, was the seventh in a line of past Buddhas. And so 2,500 years ago, for only the seventh time, according to some, a Buddha appeared. We've been without a Buddha for some 2,500 years. And we'll be without a Buddha for many thousands, according to some tens of thousands of years. But there is a bodhisattva named Maitreya who is up in a heaven called Tushita who will eventually be born into this world as the next Buddha. It's helpful to know that. So when the Buddha says to the bodhisattva Maitreya, Maitreya, why don't you go to the Lichavi Vimalakirti and inquire about his illness? Uh, Lord, I'm a little reluctant to go to that good man to inquire about his illness. And why? So, boom, Maitreya gives a whole thing. I could get into it. I would like to get into it. Let's see. Where are we at? Yeah. I'd like to get into it, but it would probably be way too much. But needless to say, all the bodhisattvas, one by one. And, and if you read this, the, the level of discourse is up to notch. Because these are bodhisattvas. So the discourse gets heavy, and one by one, the bodhisattvas say, this one time I met, with my, I, met, I met him, and I mean, there's this great story in here about this one time that there was a bodhisattva, and he was meditating, and Mara shows up with all these, uh, like, a harem of, you know, like, strippers and, you know, pole dancers, the whole, you can imagine the whole thing, right? Shows up, and basically is like, yo, uh, Mara says to this meditating bodhisattva, I'll give you this whole harem. And it turns into this whole thing where Vimalakirti steps in and flips the script on the whole thing and then drops this on, on the harem. And of course, the bodhisattva and Mara and everybody else hears it. But it's a beautiful little part. 
He says, uh, so Vimalakirti says to all of them, sisters, there is a special Dharma door called the inexhaustible lamp. Practice it. What is it? Sisters, a single lamp may light hundreds of thousands of of lamps without itself being diminished. Likewise, sisters, a single bodhisattva may establish many hundreds of thousands of living beings in enlightenment without his mindfulness being diminished. In fact, not only does it not diminish, it grows stronger. Likewise, the more you teach and demonstrate virtuous qualities to others, the more you grow with respect to these virtuous qualities. This is the Dharma door called the inexhaustible lamp. When you are living in the realm of Mara, inspire innumerable gods and goddesses with the spirit of enlightenment. And in such a way, you will repay the kindness of the Buddha and you will become the benefactors of all living beings. Interesting little meditation that when you take a candle, you could light a thousand candles with it and still have that flame burning. You ever thought of that? That in itself is this meditation. And then he says, in similar ways, the mind of a bodhisattva passing dharma on is like the candle flame. And not only does the mind not get weaker, it gets stronger. It's a beautiful little meditation. I wanted to share that because every single paragraph of this book is amazing little nuggets and things to think about. So I'm speeding through it, but this is just a, an advertisement for this sutra to try to get you to read it, right? All right, one by one, all that until finally then, um, in the same way, all the bodhisattvas, great spiritual heroes as they are, told the stories of their conversations with Malakirti and declared their reluctance to go. Until. Chapter five. Uh, Visiting uh, or consoling Vimalakirti. Then the Buddha said to the crown prince Manjushri, Manjushri, go to the Lichavi Vimalakirti to inquire about his illness. Now, those of you who have been coming on Sundays, you'll know we've done a few sutras where Manjushri has starred. Manjushri is the bodhisattva of wisdom. He embodies pranya, this transcendental wisdom. He is considered the smartest bodhisattva bar none. There's some that are more compassionate. There's some that have more zeal. There's some that have more this and that. But in terms of pranya, in terms of non-dual wisdom, Manjushri is the one. So obviously, he's our guy. Manjushri replied, Lord, it is difficult to attend upon the Lichavi Vimalakirti. He is gifted with marvelous eloquence concerning the law of the profound. He is extremely skilled in full expressions and in the reconciliation of dichotomies. His eloquence is inexorable, and no one can resist his imperturbable intellect. He accomplishes all the activities of the bodhisattvas. He penetrates all the secret mysteries of the bodhisattvas and the Buddhas. He is skilled in civilizing all the all the devils. He plays with the great supernologies. He is consummate in wisdom and, and upaya. He has attained the, the supreme excellence of the indivisible, non-dual sphere, and the ultimate realm. Um, he is skilled in teaching the Dharma with his infinite modalities within the uniform ultimate. He is skilled in granting means of attainment in accordance with the spiritual faculties of all living beings. He has attained decisiveness with regard to all questions. 
Thus, although he cannot be withstood by someone of my feeble defenses, still, sustained by the grace of the Buddha, I will go to him and will converse with him as well as I can. So thereupon, in the assembly, the Bodhisattva, the great disciple, disciples, the Shavakas, the Brahmas, the, all, everybody, all, everybody, the Nagas, Maharagas, Kimnaras, all of them, all, and thus all of them, and 8,000 Bodhisattvas, 500 disciples, the great number of Shavakas, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and the goddesses all followed the crown prince Manjushri to listen to the Dharma. And the crown prince Manjushri, surrounded and followed by these bodhisattvas, disciples, da 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 da, da all went to the city of Vaishali. Um, meanwhile, in this, uh, meanwhile, the Lechavi Vimalakirti thought to himself, Manjushri, the crown prince is coming with his numerous attendants. Now, may this house be transformed into emptiness. Then magically his house became empty. Even the doorkeeper disappeared. And except for the invalid's couch upon which Vimalakirti himself was lying, no bed or chair or seat could be seen anywhere. You all get that it's supposed to be funny, right? He made his house empty. They're being funny, like with the whole emptiness thing. All right, I'm just not, in case you're not getting, if this this suture was brought to my attention by one of my professors in graduate school. It came to my uh, attention because in a lecture he said it, it was the only suture he knew about that intentionally employed humor, like as an upaya, as a skillful means. It's supposed to be hilarious. It's supposed to be really funny. So when they're doing things like that, like, oh, and he, he made his house empty. It's like, ha-ha. <laughs> right? So then, uh, then the uh, Malakirti saw the crown prince Manjushri and addressed him thus. Manjushri, welcome, Manjushri. You are very welcome. There you are without any coming. You appear without any seeing. You are heard without any hearing. Manjushri declared, Householder, it is as you say. Who comes, finally comes not. Who goes, ultimately goes not. Why? Who comes is not known to come. Who goes is not known to go. Who appears is finally not to be seen. Yeah, that you could spend a lifetime... <laughs> on that little exchange between Malkirti and Manjushri. Good sir, is your condition tolerable? Is it livable? Are your physical ailments not disturbed? Is your sickness diminishing? Is it not increasing? The Buddha asks about you. If you have slight trouble, slight discomfort, slight sickness, if your distress is light, if you are cared for, strong, at ease, without self-reproach, and if you are living in touch with supreme happiness. Householder, whence came this sickness of yours? How long will it continue? How does it stand? How can it be alleviated? The Malakirti replied, Manjushri, my sickness comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence, and it will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to right now be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why? Manjushri, for the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings, and sickness is inherent in living in this world. 
were all living beings free of sickness, the bodhisattva also would be free of sickness. For example, Manjushri, when the only son of a merchant is sick, both his parents become sick on account of the sickness of their son. And the parents will suffer as long as that only and the parents will suffer as long as that only son does not recover from his sickness. Just so, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva loves all living beings as if each were his only child. He becomes sick when they are sick, and he is cured when they are cured. You ask me, Manjushri, whence comes my sickness? The sickness of the Bodhisattvas arise from their great compassion. They go on to have a further dialogue that is equally as wondrous and profound. Questions? Can you take one more? Good, because that would be exactly halfway and exactly where I wanted to get. So everybody following how this is reading, that it's kind of a little different than our normal sutra, but at the same time, it's kind of exactly like all the sutras, right? In, right? I have a question. Yes, please, Ed. It's kind of hard to put into words, but I kind of, um, since we're talking definitions, but what, like the Dharma is the teaching of the Buddha, which is transmitted. They're talking about, a couple chapters back, some other kind of transmission of something because it doesn't have words. Mm. So, I mean, I guess that I just don't, I just kind of, I, I mean, I like, is it like you get to some sort of level where you're like, the words are irrelevant? No, the, the type of Buddhism or the teaching or the Dharma, if you will, that's in here is, oh, I think so, because that reminded me too. This sutra, like Zen Buddhism in China, like comes from the sutra. A lot of Zen Buddhism, a lot of Zen Buddhist thinking, Zen Buddhist uh, practice comes from the sutra. Zen Buddhism, if you don't know, is called a special Dharma of the Buddha transmitted without using words and letters. That's what Zen talks about itself as, a special transmission of the Buddha without relying on words and letters. That, that idea gets from the part that you just referenced in this sutra, this idea that the real Dharma is beyond words and letters. The real Dharma, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't talk about it. So then what do we do, Buddha? What, what are we doing here, right? What I'm going to suggest is that this sutra and then ultimately the Zen that comes out of it the idea is that you can, uh, through performance, through all kinds of things, this is what upaya is, what skillful means, means, what the meaning of upaya is this teaching that is suggestive. It's not going to just say it. It's going to, I like, uh, you know... And, and, the, and it's like, oh, of course, of course. There, there's a way in which the, the way to teach this Dharma becomes very subtle because it, you're not going to just say, all life is suffering, suffering is caused by attachment, don't be attached, you won't suffer. Like, 
old school direct Buddhism. This sadharma, the subtle dharma, is can only be suggested, it can be alluded to, and there's a way in which when the Buddha holds up a flower and twists in it, twists it in his fingers, and Kashyapya, he's like, of course. Everybody else in that, so if you, I'm referencing, a, there's a sutra, a, a story of a telling of a Buddha, or the Buddha telling a story, in which instead of the sermon, he just takes a flower out, and, and there's one monk named Kashyapya that's like, And everybody else is like, what? <laughs> but that exchange where it's like, oh, I get it. And only Kashyapya was ready. He's the only one that, that got the meaning is twisting the flower. So if I pulled out a flower and twisted it, have I just communicated the sadharma, the, the subtle dharma? Of course not. I would need to do something else. If I were a real bodhisattva skilled in upaya, I could do some crazy something. Or say, you know, and that would be upayak. So that's what this dharma is, that you have to allude to it, suggest it, uh, tell crazy stories, right? Uh, we, I don't know if we can do it. We can do it? Okay, so just because I, I wanted to get to this chapter to share with you what is, because yes, there's a lot of discourse in here that's like, whoa, like you've got to read it seven times, and it's like your little beads of sweat because you're trying to hold on to what they're talking about. But the story of this, in terms of this, this sadharma, this subtle dharma, it's the story of this. So remember, the Malakirti just made his house empty, right? Took everything out. So thereupon, Shariputra had this thought. Shariputra, by the way, is like the whipping boy of the sutra. He just keeps, <laughs> all these things keep happening to him. So Shariputra had this thought. There's not even a single chair in this house. Where are all these disciples and all these bodhisattvas supposed to sit? The Malakirti read the mind of Shariputra and said, Shariputra, did you come here for the sake of, a, of the Dharma or did you come here for a chair? <laughs> Thank you. Shariputra replied, I came for the Dharma, not for a chair. The Malakirti continued, Shariputra, he who is interested in the Dharma is not interested even in his own body, much less a chair. Shariputra, he who is interested in the Dharma has no interest in matter, sensation, perception, conditioning, or consciousness, the five skandhas. He has no interest in these aggregates or in the elements or in sense media. Interested in the Dharma, he has no interest in the realm of desire, the realm of form, or the formless realm. Interested in the Dharma, he's not interested in attachment to the Buddha, attachment to the Dharma, or attachment to the Sangha. Shariputra, he who is interested in the Dharma is not interested in recognizing suffering, abandoning it, uh, realizing its cessation or practicing the path. And why? The Dharma is ultimately without formulation and without verbalization. Who verbalizes suffering should be recognized, origination should be eliminated, cessation should be realized, the path should be practiced. That person is not interested in the Dharma they're interested in verbalization. Reverend Shariputra, the Dharma is calm and peaceful. Those who are engaged in production and destruction are not interested in the Dharma. They're not interested in solitude, but they're interested in production and destruction. 
Furthermore, Shariputra, the Dharma is without taint and free of defilement. He who is attached to anything, even liberation, is not interested in the Dharma, but they're interested in taints and desire. The Dharma is not an object. He who pursues object is not interested in the Dharma. He's interested in objects. The Dharma is without acceptance or rejection. He who holds on to things or lets things go is not interested in the Dharma. They're interested in holding things and letting things go. The Dharma is not a secure refuge. He who enjoys a secure refuge is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in a secure refuge. The Dharma is without sign. He, who, he whose consciousness pursues signs is not interested in the Dharma, but interested in signs. The Dharma is not a society. He who seeks the, to associate with the Dharma is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in association. The Dharma is not sight, sound, a category, or an idea. He who is involved in sight, sounds, categories, and ideas is not interested in the Dharma, but interested in sight, sounds, categories, and ideas. Shariputra, the Dharma is free from compounded things and uncompounded things. He who adheres to compounded things and uncompounded things is not interested in the Dharma, but interested in adhering to compounded things and uncompounded things. Therefore, Shariputra, if you're interested in the Dharma, you should take no interest in anything at all. When Vimalakirti had spoken this discourse, 500 gods obtained the purity of the Dharma eye in viewing all things. Bing! Just like that. <laughs> Manjushri replied, Noble sir. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, okay, this is the part. So then, after the bing, after the 500 gods achieve uh, their Dharma eye, then Vimalakirti said to the crown prince, Manjushri, You have already been to innumerable hundreds of thousands of Buddha lands throughout the universe in all ten directions. In which Buddha land did you see the best lion thrones with the finest qualities? Manjushri replied, Noble sir, if one crosses the Buddha lands all the way to the east, which are more numerous than all the grains of sand in 32,000 Ganges rivers, one will discover a universe there called Meru Devajya, and there dwells a Buddha there called Meru Pradiparaja, and his body measures 8,400,000 4, leagues in height. And the height of his throne is 6,800,000 6, leagues tall. The bodhisattvas there are 4,200,000 4, leagues tall. And their own thrones are 3,400,000 leagues high. Noble sir, the finest and most superb thrones exist in that universe. And at that moment, Vimalakirti, having focused himself in concentration performed a miraculous feat such that the Lord Tathagata, Meru Paradiparaja, in the universe Meru Vidyaja, sent to this universe 3,200,000 thrones. These thrones were so tall, spacious, and beautiful that the Bodhisattvas, great disciples, Shravakas, Brahmas, Lokapalas, and all the gods had never seen anything like them before. The thrones descended from the sky and came to rest in the house of the Lichavi Vimalakirti. The 3,200,000 thrones arranged themselves throughout the crowd and the house seemed to enlarge itself accordingly. The great city of Vaishali did not become obscured in any way, neither did the land of Jambudvipa, nor the world of, <clears throat> nor the other four continents. 
the other three continents. Everything else appeared just as before. Then Vimalakirti said to the prince Manjushri, Manjushri, let the bodhisattvas be seated on these thrones, having transformed their bodies and, and, have, and transformed their bodies to a suitable size. Then those bodhisattvas who had attained the super-knowledges transformed their bodies to a height of 4,200,000 leagues and sat upon their thrones. But the beginner bodhisattvas were not able to transform themselves to sit upon the thrones. <laughs> then Vimalakirti taught those beginner bodhisattvas a teaching that enabled them to attain the five superpowers. And having attained them, they transformed their bodies into a height of 4,200,000 leagues tall and sat upon their thrones. But still... The great disciples, the Shravakas, were not able to seat themselves upon the thrones. The Malkirti said to, to Shariputra, Shariputra, take a seat upon your throne. Good sir, these thrones are too high, too big. I can't sit on them. The Malkirti said, Shariputra, if you bow down to the Tathagata Meru Paradipraja, you will be able to take your seat. Then the great disciples bowed down to the Buddha, Meru Pradipraja, and they were all seated upon their thrones. Then Shariputra said to the Lichavi Vimalakirti, Noble sir, it's astonishing that these thousands of thrones, so big and so high, should fit into such a small house, and that the great city of Vaishali, the villages, cities, kingdoms, capitals, and all the other three continents, the abodes of the gods, the Nagas, the Yakshas, the Gandharabas, the Suras, the Garudas, Kanaras, and the Maharagas, that all of these should appear without any obstacle, just as they were before. The Malakirti replied, Shariputra, for the Tathagatas and the Bodhisattvas, there is a liberation called inconceivable. So this is a samadhi. If you were here for the sort of wisdom and the samadhi of invisibility, this is the samadhi of inconceivability. The Bodhisattva who lives in the incon inconceivable samadhi, listen close. Ah, oh, wow. The Bodhisattva who lives in this inconceivable liberation can put the king of mountains, Sumeru, which is so high, so great, so noble, and so vast, into a mustard seed. He can, perform, he can perform this feat without enlarging the mustard seed, nor without shrinking Mount Maru. And the deities of the assembly of the four Lokapalas protecting the perimeter of Maru, and of uh, the gods of the 33 heavens, they don't even know where they are. Only those beings who are destined to be dis disciplined by miracles see and understand the putting of the king of mountains, Maru, into a mustard seed. That, Reverend Shariputra, is an entrance to the domain of the inconceivable liberation of the bodhisattvas. Furthermore, Shariputra, the bodhisattva who lives in this inconceivable liberation can pour into a single pore of his skin all the waters of the four great oceans without injuring the water animals, such as fish, tortoises, crocodiles, frogs, any other creatures, and without the Nagas, Yakshas, Gandharavas, Asuras, and Maharagas even being aware of where they are. 
and the whole operation is visible without any injury or disturbance to any of those living beings. Such a bodhisattva can pick up with his right hand the billion-fold world galactic universe as if it were a potter's wheel, and spinning it around, throw it beyond universes as numerous as the sands of Ganges rivers, without the living beings therein knowing their motion or its origin. And he can catch it and put it back into place without the living beings suspecting that they have come or gone. And yet the whole operation is visible. I mean, I could go on and on about this liberation. Reverend Shariputra, I have only shown you a small part of the entrance into the domain of the bodhisattva who lives in the samadhi of inconceivability. Reverend Shariputra, to explain to you the teaching of the full entrance into the domain of the bodhisattva who lives in the samadhi of inconceivability would require more than a kalpa and even more than that. All right, so there's a little more to it, but I wanted to talk about the thrones very quickly. We're a little past, but it's really important. I can't just leave you there. Questions, though? Maybe we don't talk about it for a couple, but maybe one more Sunday? Maybe On this? Yeah. We're only halfway through. Okay. That's what I wanted. Okay. First half, second half. I'm glad that we got to the thrones, though, because this is, again, this is like the Dharma in here, the Dharma of non-duality in particular, is like unparalleled in its accessibility. So I encourage you to read it if you're interested in that stuff. But it is the, the Buddha touching his toe. Tr- trans- First of all, it's the parasols becoming a giant canopy of jewels. So that's like the first miracle of this story, right? Then the Buddha touches his toe and transforms all which is under the canopy into a jeweled world. So now you have a jeweled world under a jeweled canopy. That's where the sutra takes place, right? Then you get this trickster magician guy, Vimalakirti, who's going to pretend like he's sick and he's going to make his house disappear. And then he's going to conjure from a Buddha land zillions of miles away these giant thrones descending into this room. There is something very significant going on with these thrones, right? Um, it's a little too late to give you the full, you know, thing about it, but one preliminary point. You should know that before there was images of the Buddha, before there were statues of the Buddha, before there was any of that, p- perhaps the oldest Buddhist icon, the oldest Buddhist like image that they were like, oh, like, yes, was an empty throne. That's a very interesting idea, right? Right? An empty White House. <laughs> right? No president. How about, th- not, not a better president. How about no president? Right? It's, it's tantamount to that. Uh, a better king? How about no king? Or... Now, this is, I just wanted to tell you that this throne thing is big in Buddhism. It has been. Again, it's probably one of the earliest icons of Buddhism is an empty throne. 
I, I, I have to just be explicit and tell you what's going on with this. Who sits on a throne? The king. The king. Or uh, if we want to decontextualize it, we could say the sovereign, right? Sovereignty. The person who is sovereign sits on a throne. Does everybody know what I mean by sovereign? Or enough, that's enough nods, right? But sovereign, I mean, think of a king. Um, I, 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 I'm, I, it would be bereft of me if I didn't mention this great living today Italian philosopher named Giorgio Agamben, A-G-A-M-B-E-N, my number one philosopher, thinker, smartest man definitely on the planet today. Um, he writes a lot about sovereignty and the paradox of sovereignty in that uh, the sovereign is the one who gets to make the rules but is not subject to the rules. That's who a sovereign is. I get to make the rules, but they don't apply to me. So I'm above them, but they are based on me, meaning I tell you the rules, but I'm not subject to them. That makes me the sovereign. So there's an interesting... So what is sovereign? Sovereign is independence. Sovereign is self-determination. Sovereign is... um, I mean, we could be here all night talking about sovereignty, but the important thing about it is, is that the sovereign, one who is sovereign, sits on a throne. So what happens? What is happening in here when 32,000 thrones descend in this room and everybody gets their own throne? I suggest, that it's what the, I suggest what's being presented is this notion of sovereignty, that we all have the ability to be sovereign through the Dharma in particular through the liberative quality or the liberative aspects of the Dharma, we can become the, like the king of our world, if you will. I mean, you have to, I mean, the reason why, oh, that's a good point. Let me kind of start to wind this down with that, with this idea. Sovereign, subject, right? Subjects are all the people that follow the rules, right? And so within that paradigm of sovereignty and subjects, ruler and ruled rules and all of that, it is a big, giant interdependence game, is it not? Is it a big game of me being subject is only based on you being the king? If I, It's the only way it works. And if I decide, you know what? Mm, you're not king. Nah, nah. You don't get to rule me anymore. And there's a way in which, you know, this can be tested through revolution and the rubber meets the road when sovereignty is truly tested. But the idea, though, is is that that these thrones, boom, sovereign. The Buddha, the Dharma is offering you a way to, like, you are your own sovereign. I cannot, you know, really uh, express enough how radical that is that's a radical idea like politically radical not just dharma enlightenment that i'm talking about politically this notion of psych (laughs) take your throne away boom who's king now (laughs) that is a wild idea and i'm suggesting that this vision of these thrones 
and and Shari Putra being like, I can't, I can't sit on that. That's what he's saying. I'm not tall enough to sit on that. So the language of I'm not tall enough to sit on that, I'm not great enough to sit on a throne. So that's where Shariputra started, right? I'm not worthy. I am not great enough to sit on a throne. And Vimalakirti's like, dude. And he sits on the throne. They all sit on the thrones, right? I think it's a very powerful image. And I wanted to definitely get there because that's how this sutra is operating. You read it the first time, you're like, what? Chairs coming from the ceiling and jeweled canopies and like... But if you understand the Mahayana vocabulary and especially kind of more implicit understandings like sovereignty and all that, the wild sutra, very wild sutra. And it gets wilder. (laughs) So, okay. Thank you so much for that. I'll take questions, but I just want to thank you for staying through that, all of that. Oh. Um, Do you want to just announce real fast? Oh, sorry. Questions first. Yeah. Just any time. Yeah. So, uh, quick question. Yeah, yeah. Putra is a monk, I assume. Uh, he's not supposed to sit on a high throne. It's like one of his main rules in life. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. By the way, this is Shariputra. That's the Buddha, my Buddhayana. Shariputra. Yes. So, there's another thing going on. There's so many, so many things. Uh, Vimalakirti in his bed, it is a high bed. And if you don't know, it is a rule in the Theravada tradition that you, monk or not, are not supposed to sleep on a high bed. So there's a funny thing going on where Vimalakirti's got a high bed, you know. So there's these, all these paradoxes going on. Definitely the idea of sitting on a throne in old school Buddhism is like a no-no. In the sense that like you shouldn't take a government position, you shouldn't take a government job, and you definitely shouldn't like try to be a king. So there is a way in which Shariputra is like, I'm not supposed to do that. Thank you for referencing that. In later chapters, again, Shariputra is just going to get worked. All of Shariputra's prejudices and hang-ups are going to get exposed. And so thank you for reminding me of that. That the, Him being like, no, 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 I'm not going to sit in a throne is one of his hang-ups. And again, Vimalakirti is like, no, no, I'm not talking about being king of the world, I'm talking about being king of yourself. Like, sovereign. Profound idea. Any other? All right. Thank you so much.